Scott Brady, and I feel like right now I should be doing this entire introduction in an English accent because I'm wearing a pith helmet. Now, why am I wearing a pith helmet? I'm wearing a pith helmet because Matt Scott and I are going to start to talk about old school cool. So we're going to talk about classic overland gear. We're going to talk about period correct vehicle modifications. We're going to really kind of do a deep dive into something that is just a lot of fun. So this is not travel advice. We're not suggesting that people throw their smartphone out the window, although I think about doing that daily. But we are talking about using cool old gear to kind of reconnect with that heritage, with that legacy of travel and learning about those old technologies and those old ways of doing things in a way that brings us a lot of joy. So please enjoy my conversation with Matt Scott on Old School Cool. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. All right, Matt. So we've got old school cool. Yeah, we're we're talking about doing things the right way. And and I'm gonna see how long how long I can balance this pith helmet. Yeah, if you're not on on my if you're not on on my headphones watching it, this will make no sense to you. But (laughs) Scott is balancing a pith helmet on top of his headphones. <laughs> we got talking about this idea of period correct vehicles, which we're going to talk about today because there's, I think there's a lot of merit yeah. to that. But then also all of these other things that are kind of steeped in adventure travel lore, like like things a lot of us still get excited about, like paper maps or or hardcover bound books or yeah, I mean, analog, this, analog watches, things like that. That yeah, I think a lot of people have I think appreciation the analog for. Watch is a is a great way. I mean, you're you're wearing your your Speedmaster. I've got my little Garmin, and that's the best way to put it. Is there there are all of these modern accessories that make life on the road or overlanding or four wheel drive travel like so much easier. They do, but I don't know if it necessarily makes things better. Yeah, sometimes they do. I think it's it's like any of the especially if you look at the fact that the modern human is having to encounter all of these addictive elements at yeah. such a rapid rate. You have these psychologists that that's their job to make whatever version of social media yeah. that you're on addictive. as addictive as addictive as possible. And it's the same thing with electronics. If if we just got back to if we exercised every single day, reliably, we probably wouldn't need any kind of electronic device to tell us that we're feeling better. Uh, but it is something that helps us get the process started. Yeah. And oftentimes, like well, if I was an elite, elite athlete, athlete, which I'm not, <laughs> then then that stuff would probably be more useful. What we're talking about now is taking some joy in the analog 
yeah. uh, taking some joy in I'm totally going to lose this bit helmet. <laughs> it's like barely, ba- barely hanging on. Oh, we're now accepting bets. <laughs> I know we're going to see, we're going to see how long this thing actually, I'm going to get animated at some point. Things go, it's going to go flying. But I do think starting with the analog watch is an interesting idea. You and I both have a bunch of analog watches. The one that I love the most is is my dad's Seiko, and oh, it was Seikos are nice. Yeah. It was a Seiko. It was. It's called the Pogue. It, it's basically a. It's a chronometer. It's it's an old watch that he bought when he was in the Air Force in Thailand. One day he's like, "Hey Scott, I got this old watch you might be interested in." And it's like any watch collector when their dad says that, it's like, "What is gonna?" Because you have no idea like what it's gonna be. It could be like an old crappy yeah. Casio, or like you have no idea. And he pulls out this very rare Seiko, this very cool old Seiko that. Now I get to wear, which is awesome. Yeah, which is awesome. I, I wouldn't expect any less from your dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And then, like right now, I'm you know I'm wearing this this Speedmaster from from Omega. So that's a that's I'm going to take the hat off because it's totally gonna yeah. it's gonna go cascading down in some wrong direction. The Speedmaster is an interesting one because it was the first watch that was certified for space travel. It has nothing to do with the fact that this watch is a great watch for some technical reason, other than at the time it was technically superior for space travel. But today I like to wear it because it brings that history with it. It bring I have to wind it every morning. I, that's what I love about my Speedmaster is like, it, it's the winding. Like that's yeah. what makes it kind of unique and addictive because it's that fidget spinner. <laughs> it's the original expensive fidget, fidget It's spinner. the original fidget spinner, but it's also like, I'm not an astronaut. I'm not even a pilot, but I have such respect for those trap for those those astronauts, for the cosmonauts, for all of those people who took these huge risks to push the limits of exploration. And I get to wear a small piece of that. And for someone else, it might be a Rolex Explorer like that was worn by Sir Edmund Hillary mm. when he made the first ascent yeah. of Everest. So there are all of these things that are analog that are, I think, that are interesting and they can add a lot of value to our life or a lot of pleasure. You had a really good disclaimer, which I think is important for us to talk about in the beginning. This is not travel advice. Yeah, right. We're going to file this one under Overland class or no, not Overland classifieds under Overland. uh, (laughs) Classic Overlanding, maybe. Yeah. Overland Overland lifestyle. lifestyle. Overland lifestyle. Overland lifestyle (laughs) podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think for me, I, I just go back to how amazing four wheel drives have become and in let's say the last 10 years yeah what it was it 2007 we had the jk for example and all of a sudden you had something that went down the road as fast as you wanted went over as far as an overlander is concerned went over anything yep was pretty reliable got decent gas watch and it's just gotten better and better like you look at the jl you look at the new grenadier you look at the you know the stuff toyota's doing you look yeah, at the, the new 250 Land Cruiser is so good. is huge. But then you look at like, it's not really an overland truck, but you look at like the Raptor or the TRX and you yeah. see how far and how fast things can go. And I guess what maybe started uh, this whole thing for me is it just, it's just become so easy. You know, like I, I go on my phone, I have Gaia on my phone. I know exactly where I am. I make the route or the track beforehand. I follow it. I have no mechanical issues. The car doesn't overheat. I just kind of drive i go you're set at the like a perfect 70 degree yeah, interior the, the temperature seats are on yeah part of camping part of overlanding part of a lot of this you know outdoor pursuit is being a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. 
and we're meant to as humans. It's it's how if you think about that, we don't need to go into specific time frames because everybody has a different opinion of that. But if you go with eons as a time frame, for eons, human beings have been uncomfortable pretty much all of the time. Yeah. So I think that modernity has created this condition where I think a lot of people are unhappy because they're not being tested. They're not being challenged. Yeah. So drive an old Land Rover. Yeah. I look, at, I look at this Land Rover that's <laughs> that's behind us and things like that just become more appealing to me lately because you're yeah. so cocooned in comfort. I mean, particularly, you know, we travel in an earth roamer now and, oh, it's I want to sleep at 68 degrees. You press the button for the AC, you turn the Starlink on, and you're falling asleep to 90s sitcoms. Like, it's almost too easy. Yeah. You know, and people that listen know that I'm into kind of classic cars and the kind of collector car space. I kind of hang out in that world. And there's this whole idea of, you know, vehicles being period correct. Yeah. You know, the resto mod thing was definitely a craze. You know, resto mod is a term I, I use lightly i guess putting disc brakes in your car like go for it yeah, <laughs> you know sure. uh, the, the probably thing, a good idea you know <laughs> you know getting rid of points and getting an electronic you know distributor yeah it's just gonna make it better the idea and it really sunk in when i was just at goodwood revival is this idea of things kind of being in period and actually how important it is yeah you know we, we look at this defender and that's behind us down to the the correct steel wheels, the safety devices, brush guard, the Michelin XCLs. Mm-hmm. These aren't the Ramsey worm drive winch. Yeah. yeah. You know, the Defender to me for, is, is a great example. Like like this to me is what a Defender should be. Sorry, that was super winch. Super winch. The Defender to me should be like you can overbuild these things. You can really make them terrible. Like you see a lot of these vehicles that come out of the UK and they've got the you know, the quilted northern cross-stitched ply weird seats and door panels and Alcantara. And they've got these like terrible wheels on them and these yep. huge massive tires. That is never what the Defender was meant to be. Like yeah. you're, you're missing the point. Like the Defender is meant to be a bit of a tractor. Yeah, it, it's it a, was. Yeah, it's something that you Chelsea get tractor. In. Yeah, it's something that you <laughs> get in and it brings you back to a time. Yeah. And I think that that's becoming a little bit more important in the way that you know, people will build a period correct 911 down to the bias ply tires that it used to race. Yeah. Let's have that same experience on the four wheel drive side. Uh, and for me, when I drive the Defender, there's a lot of things that I, I notice. I notice that I'm not as easily distracted. I'm, I mean, I've already gotten rid of my smartphone while yeah. I'm on the domestic side of, of things. I don't, don't use a smartphone anymore, but I don't find this compulsion to check my phone. I don't even have a way to charge the phone. There's not only not a cigarette lighter, there's not a radio with a touchscreen yeah. to plug it in to have your podcast. I mean, there is nothing in the car that connects to modern electronics at all. There's no OBD2. It is all 100% analog. And because it's a manual transmission, I'm shifting. The The windows may not even go up. So I'm whatever the temperature is outside. That's where that's what you're doing. Exactly. You know? I'm and driving the car and every single time I do it. Now, it doesn't mean that I want to drive the thing to Seattle. Like, would I? Of course. But like, like there are better choices for like getting work done. But sometimes... Yeah. It feels really good to disconnect from all of that and just enjoy something that is classic. Obviously different periods. Um, but, you know, I look at the AEV LJ that I have yeah, and I love that car and I love getting into it. You know, for me, that is literally 2006. 
I know that that's not vintage, but we're not really talking about vintage. We're, we're talking coming up on 20 things. years though, Matt. It's yeah. crazy. We're talking about things being era appropriate. And like that car came out when I was 16. Yeah. That was, if I had, I mean, I didn't have posters on my walls, but if I did. Like, 2006, you were 16. Yeah, so that, that, was the, that was the year we started Overland Journal. Yeah. <laughs> and then I came and worked for you like a couple of years later. You did. I, I'm kind of, what I'm kind of trying to get at is like, there's an emotion that's nice. That's a disconnect in that car for me that every modification that is on that is period correct. Mm-hmm. It's all the correct AEV parts from the AEV big brake kit to the nth degree suspension everything is the dream of 2006 yeah it was there's a lot of people that are looking at this like oh that was just yesterday i'm like yeah but i'm i'm younger than you so get over it but to me it's like so to you it is classic yeah there's no (laughs) there's no touch screen you know it still has like a regular radio with like kind of like you know the little green letters that tells you that you know the number of the station there's no crazy interior lighting Mm -hmm. like modern jeeps it still drives like a jeep you know, it's got a nice V8, so it has some power, but I haven't gotten rid of my smartphone, but I have like a little Bluetooth adapter that streams it by FM radio. And I have like on Apple music, like 2006 rock hits or alternative <laughs> hits or something. And it just kind of takes me to this period. And, you know, I think, but maybe that's what it is. I mean, now that you're ta- saying that, like that was the car that you aspired yeah. to when you were 16 and I was a few years older, but like 18 is when I first came in contact with the Camel Trophy. And I just remember being completely wide-eyed. Yeah. And what's the car that I'm driving is a Defender. It's the vehicle yeah. that that I guess maybe connects in with that first spark mm-hmm. of the possibility of adventure. Uh, and I suspect that many that are listening have the same. And, and I know Marcos, who I have, have the Defender with, it's the same for him. It's like, it's the car yeah. that he looks back at and is realizing like that was this aspiration. Yeah. Like I'll get people, you know, I I've become very particular with modifications on cars. Well, like with the super duty, that's yeah. interesting so, to talk so about. So I have this, I have this seven, three, 2000 F two fifty Bruce Dorn. That is 22 years old, 23 yeah. years old now. Yeah. That's Bru- crazy. Bruce Dorn bought it new. Um, you, you can listen to his interviews. He's a dear friend of both of ours. And I grew up racing, little sprint cars and go-karts and that kind of stuff and traveled all over the country with my dad. Now he had an excursion, but, and I remember sitting in the front seat, there's no difference. Yeah, there's no difference. So I I remember like putting my feet like in the little, the little dip of the door by the mirror. Yeah. And my earth roamer has, it's a 2011, but same, you know, really it's the same body style. Sure. There were updates to it, but it's so like important to me. Is the feeling that I get in in this seven three? It it has to be correct. Now yeah. the only thing that I haven't abided by is is he had like a little CarPlay head unit in there. Yeah, I've kept that in there. So you know, I'm not. It's it's not a hundred percent, but all But you tow your you tow your race car with it. You you got long. Yeah, it's practical. You yeah, know? you have hours on the road. You need to be able to conduct phone calls. It's and- got the Shieldman seats, which I know are a newer thing in the U.S. since Toby started importing them. Um, but they're very era appropriate for that car. Totally. You know, I put an ARB bumper on like the deluxe bumper. Yeah. And I love the way that like anything else on that, on that car to me just looks wrong. Mm. It's got the Ford Australia snorkel. You know, I found these new old stock IPF lights and the name of them model is, is, is escaping me, but they actually have like a a high and a low setting and they're massive. They're like nine inches. Sure. But they have like the plastic grills. I mean, they're, 
they're perfect for the car. Sure. And as I go through this, everything that I'm kind of doing, like I'm trying to keep it in period. You know, I think it, I think it just goes back to kind of things being fit for purpose and thinking of the era that the vehicle was, you know, the two thousands are a little, a little weird, you know, they're, they're kind of considered these young timer collector cars. And I don't think that like the seven three is a collector car. I would say it is, but it's, you know, like there's my so, dad's seven three super oh duty. God, his is like, meh. it is it's it's totally like, stock. It is totally but it's stock. actually way cooler because it's totally, it's like you either have to have things totally stock yeah. when it gets old or it has to be modified in the correct way. Sure. You know, if you, if you, anything else yeah, is kind of, I don't know. It's not, it's not my style. You know, I think that. And my dad bought that brand new in 1999. Yeah. I, I think that. There's exceptions to the rule. Yeah. Um, let's think of like Jonathan Ward with the Icon FJs. Right. They have the LED lights and the you know more modern wheels and brakes and interiors, but it's it's considered as an entire package. Oh, for sure. And he's a designer. He's doing it right. And um, it's what he's trying. It's what he's trying to achieve. It, whereas you can tell when you look at some of these defenders, it's trying to make the car something it's not. Yeah. And these are old vehicles. Well, and there's just so many like defenders that come out of the UK that it's just like, how much money can we sell this for in America? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a challenge to keep things aesthetically correct. Yeah. But like when in doubt, just don't do it. Don't do anything. And I think, I think that's maybe the lesson in a lot of this classic kit is that, I mean, we've got some things here on the table, like. We have a Sun Compass from World War II. It took me years and years and years to finally find one. But the idea that with a great deal of precision, people were soldiers in Northern Africa were navigating using just the sun. And this is a lost art, but there's some joy in finding it. There's some joy in finding these things and doing that. Um, you know, the pith helmet is probably questionable, but, you know, even on the other side of it, for those on YouTube, but we, this is a Michelin map. Now, Michelin maps are great. Michelin maps have been around for a very long time and they've been considered the standard for international travel for a very long time. You know, and you're looking at the Northeast of Africa, which just happens to be a place that I'm actively planning my route as I move through Africa. But I can see, you know, here's Kenya, here's Ethiopia, Yemen, Oman, and and to spread this map out on the table mm. and see it in its entirety is so different than trying to look at a map on a small screen on our phone. We lose that context. Yeah. Um, and there's something so joyful about doing it with an old map, or in this case, this map is quite old, but it's a map. It's a paper map. And, and it's like the tech, we know that the technology is there now. I mean, I think... Like, let's go back five years ago. I think that's probably like, you know, the bottom for for paper maps. Like, why would you use it? There's this great new technology. Well, now we've adopted the technology and it's okay to go back. Yeah. Because you can have both. Of it's course. It's very easy to it's have It's a good both. idea to have both. I, I keep, you know, my, my daydream lately is I, you know, and this isn't necessarily an overland, tr- you know, trip, but I have this 68 short wheelbase 911 that's nearly done at auto works it's a shop down in scottsdale that does kind of high-end uh, european stuff it's it's nearly done and i want to just take off in this yeah. thing but i want to leave my phone or you know get a dumb phone like you have yeah, exactly. and stick it somewhere if 
I break down because right. it's an old car or whatever. Just bring a spot. Which is like you? have have kind of everything be like in the period and sure. go somewhere remote and enjoy it and like totally disconnect. Like yeah. that's, I think, I, like I talk to a lot of people these days and it's this idea of travel as the disconnect. Yeah. That is huge. And what better way than to kind of, you know, surround yourself with that correct stuff, that correct era. Cause you, you kind of have to be in it. Um, you know, you have to be in the defender that doesn't have the big, you know, the big added sat nav and, and yeah. radio and all, all this kind of stuff. And it's been, it's been so interesting since I started using the dumb phone because I don't have any maps anymore. Yeah. So now I'm looking up where I am wanting to go and I'm having to put, you know, put it to memory yeah. and then really pay attention to where I'm at. Like when I go hiking now, I, I'm really having to pay attention to where I'm making turns and everything else like that. And I like, I'm beginning to really like it. Um, and, and, and it's, again, we're not, this isn't travel advice. It's more just, maybe it's a thought exercise of were things better a long time ago in some ways. And are they better now? Let's, find the best of both. Yeah. Like let's, let's appreciate that technology has come about and that we, we have advancements in medicine and things like that. We have antibiotics. We have things like that, that do make our life so much better. Uh, But there are also things that are really interesting about 30, 40, 50 years ago overlanding. I mean, uh, there's some, I brought some books too, but um, this is actually a book called overlanding by John Steele Gordon. And so many people think that overlanding is this new thing and I've been doing it for 20 years and I'm in my infancy of knowledge and my business when it comes to overlanding infancy, yeah. because this book was written in 1975 and you think about the first overland trip was done in the late 1800s by in a Mercedes Benz. But in this book, this is so fun. So 1975 and he talks about what overlanding is. He says, Overlanding is the land lover's equivalent of sailing, the long, slow crossing of large areas of the world. And it's not any different than it I've is. I've never heard it put that way, but I love it. exactly how I feel. It is. And that's what we're talking about is this long, slow journey of discovery. And if we can peel away some of these things that distract us and insulate us, yeah. then maybe we'll have a different experience, not necessarily better, but I think it's an experience that we want. I mean, I think about what you just talked about with your Porsche. If you just brought along a spot just in case an emergency happened, but you had no other way of communicating and you, and the vehicle had an issue, you would break out your toolkit and you would spend some time trying to resolve it. Mm. And if it didn't work, you'd have to flag down another motorist. Yeah. Just like you'd have to do, yeah. you'd have to reach out, you have to connect in with the world around you to try to solve problems or, or hitch a ride into town to go get a part or whatever. And like, is that such a bad thing to be able to like have those experiences? Yeah. I mean, let's, let's put it in like an overlander four wheel drive context. Right. I think the idea of the spot is a great idea um, to have, to have some way of communicating. And that would be uh, like, I, if you had an accident, Yeah, I do. Like, there's I do. no reason to die. Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason <laughs> engaging something. Take it vintage. seriously, but don't take it that seriously. Yeah. And, and, and also like people don't really like stop these days because mm-hmm. they just assume that you have a cell phone and you're going to call AAA. Right. You're going to, you, you know, the, the world has changed. It's not to say that the world isn't still a friendly place. It's just that the world's changed. Sure. Like one of the first things that you taught me was, you know, you can look at four wheel driving, like a chess game, right? Like don't, you don't have to continually change the game. You can kind of change the player. And to me, that meant 
you know, like I remember having that, that terrible Jeep on like 37s and it was just so easy to do like the trails that, you know, generally like the overland trails that we were doing. And then I went and I got this series 2a 109 land rover yeah and i learned so much because even and i remember a lot more smiles in that car oh because it was ralph, just man i still love i i yeah yeah we got to find ralph somewhere somewhere although i think i think i'm i've, I've closed the land Rover chapter <laughs> of my life. um it was a good chapter but yeah. sometimes we need sometimes we need boundaries yeah you know i look back on that and you know let's just for the exercise of of, of this say it's in a toyota now the, the little obstacles that you encounter on forest service roads and the things that you're, you're typically traveling overland mm-hmm. are just, you don't even, you, you don't even put it, the vehicle on four wheel drive anymore. You, you, you generally don't even recognize that they're there because you have 10 inches of wheel travel or you have and you big know, tires, huge, now too. huge tires. I mean, like cars coming with 35s. And the first thing people ask is how can I fit 37s? Yeah. How can it comes with 37s? How can I fit 40s? A 30 inch tire used to be like not that long ago used to be like a large tire. Like that was an appropriate tire. That's what Wranglers came with. Yeah. was Um, 30s. And now they come with from the factory with 35s if you want them. Yeah. So the idea that, again, you're just you're a little bit more immersive on the trail. Mm -hmm. The things that, oh, hey, yeah, that 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 climb. What climb is what you're going to ask in a modern vehicle where the traction control just kicks on and these cars have had that stuff for so long now that you don't recognize it. But yeah. when you get in a skinny tire 40 series or a series Land Rover with a manual transmission with leaf springs, that, <laughs> maybe a carburetor that's spurts, you know, sputtering. <laughs> yeah, that's getting hot on the climb and it's maybe a little bit of vapor lock. It's not running right. Everything becomes harder oh, yeah. and you haven't changed the game of four wheel driving. Right. You've changed the player. Sure. And I think that's something that I've come to appreciate more and more is that it's too damn easy now. And there's some great examples of that. I know, I don't, I don't know if it's still going on, but Kurt Williams and a bunch of guys in Utah did this trip called the Relic Run. Oh, yeah. And I think everything had to be 1980-ish or older. And they really encouraged, I mean, it wasn't a requirement, but they encouraged people to have a paper map, don't bring your cell phone, yeah. Uh, bring all your tools, you know, find the old Coleman stove yeah. out of your grandpa's garage. And they worked really hard on making as much of it as possible in the kind of the old school way. And these guys had so much fun. I mean, th- it was it was a trip that I had in my top three for a very long I time. I wanted to go on that. Yeah. And I, I hope they still do it or maybe they'll bring it back. Or maybe somebody can reach out and let us know if that's something that's still happening. But I just love the fact that they embraced it. And you, in every photograph, somebody was grinning or laughing yeah. because it, it it had to have been pure mayhem. Well, and like stuff breaking down and, you know, people getting stuck. And we go back to this element of escapism yeah. that I think most people in this space are kind of seeking, you know, yeah. like why else drive? Why drive to the absolute middle of nowhere, hours down a dirt road to get as far away from, you know, civilization to really just bring it with you. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that's okay too. I mean, I think again, like we're trying to, we're trying to say maybe, maybe think about, and like one of the things that I'll do when I go camping with the defender is, and I can see it up on the shelf behind you, but I've got my grandpa's bedroll. Yeah. And it's just like, it allows me to also kind of connect in with my grandpa. 
Yeah. And I've got a lot of stuff from my dad and, and it just gives me that opportunity to kind of reconnect with that and disconnect from our busy lives and all of the onslaught of technology that we've got. And again, this isn't, I'm going to repeat, this is not necessarily shouldn't be taken as gospel or as, as travel advice for, for most overland trips. Like sometimes you need Starlink because you got to earn an income while you're, while you're on the, for sure road and traveling but then we also see these great examples of people doing the opposite which is like the gullwing mercedes that came through prescott and they're going pretty much around the world yeah in this extremely rare classic car like which is just like props to that guy for like not caring that it's a half a million dollar i don't even know if that's correct anymore a very expensive car double or triple that (laughs) Yeah. yeah so okay so like put that into context or like the guys that we know from that did the london taxi trip yeah like this is an old school london taxi that they decided to drive around the world and they did well we i guess we're starting to see it you know, more on the car side is again, this, this kind of period, correct thing. Mm-hmm. The, the Perry to Peking rally is, is coming. There's actually an entire series of, of like vintage car rallies. They're not really saying you have to dress in period or, you know, don't carry a phone or anything like that, but you're, you're, you're immersing yourself in a very particular experience. Analog an analog experience. Yeah. And when you said you, when you went to Goodwood, that even a lot of people who attended dressed in period uh, over over fifty percent, like to the point where if you didn't make an effort, I'm not saying that you were shunned, but you got that kind of passive aggressive English yeah. kind of thing going on, right? Um, you know, like if. But how cool is that? I mean, the pe- the fact that people would show up with a tie and a ja- and a coat. Yeah, and it, and it, like and that's it, there's something about and that I that's special this daydream thing, it, and it is just kind of a daydream, you know. Yeah. Um, like that, that was definitely a special event to go to, you know, and, and everybody, everybody's in it, yeah. you know, and even, even the tires are made by Dunlop to the correct specifications of the car sliding through the turns. Yeah. Just cause you can make something better doesn't mean maybe that you should. Yeah. Well, so I, I like the idea of if you've got a classic vehicle, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, but another great example of this is like Jonathan Hansen's FJ40. He got that car in the early 1970s and he has kept it like pretty much period appropriate in the modifications. And I remember how intentional he was about that. But the fact that he has had that car for that long and it has to be worth five times more than what he paid for it. And he got to enjoy a vehicle that at every single stage was cool. And that's the perfect example is let's take the FJ40 that somebody bought in the 70s. So then it, you know, first it became cool to cut the fenders. Yeah. Same with like Broncos. Cut fender cars now, really not super desirable. Practical, yeah. can fit larger tires? Yes, but the moment you see one that has cut fenders, it just has a different look. Yeah. Then people started putting diamond plate on them because that was the style because it was more rough. It was yeah. more cool. Or they had rust that they had to cover up. Yeah, or yeah, or, or or I mean, sometimes that was the case. Sometimes the rust came after because the, the mud sure. and the crud got stuck between the two. You know, it kind of certainly made it worse. Yeah. And, and granted there's people that use these vehicles as recreational toys that were rock crawling and doing these things. And yeah, okay. You know, you're not, it's a, maybe a different thing. You start to paint a picture. Then they put the 350 in because it was better performance. And then, you know, then they put some different axles under it or, you know, then they did a spring over and then they put 35s and they're trying to make the car more modern to keep up. And they missed the entire point of the car. Yeah. That's, I think that's really the lesson is that the stock FJ40, the stock little Bronco with the, yeah, the tires are totally, you know, stuck into the wheels and I love it. these tiny little tires, 
that is when you see that car in town, you look at that car. When you see the Bronco that's on 35s with a they always put like what a small block Chevy in them, even though they're a Ford and it's got these huge tires and the Krager wheels and all this kind of stuff. It's definitely not as cool. No, I mean, some of that stuff is period correct, but there's also, I think, a way to do it and a way to not do it. Um, You know, you have Big Ollie. That's the famous, you know, race Bronco. That has all the right stuff because that's how it was actually done. Then there's kind of and then it was also raced. Yeah, yeah. Which is legitimate. Raced and actually like used like, you know, acquaintances with a guy that owns that Philip Seraphim and he uses it. Yeah. Like he he's rolled it. Yeah. And it, oh, how could you roll a car like that? And it's like, well, you're it's a race car. You'd get made fun of if you didn't use it. And then when you do use it, the same people well, you can never make you can never make you can never happy. make people happy, right? <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, it's it's an interesting So what are some what are some other things? I mean, we are sitting in British campaign chairs, which um you know, British campaigns have to be taken in their full context, including all of the horrific things that occurred during those campaigns. But one is reminiscing on the furniture. Yes, that's right. The furniture was one of the one of the positive the colonialism. <laughs> the, the, the furniture was one of the, the positive things that came out of it. How, but how fun is that? I mean, yeah. I have had I've had these chairs uh, since I think 2007 or 2008, yeah. and they still look as good as the day that we got them. Um, and I'm not suggesting people go buy campaign furniture for overlanding, but there's just something that's kind of fun about having them in the office. And we do, we've got the pith helmet hanging from the tree and we've got some old uh, explorers gloves that Ray Highland found somewhere on eBay. Um, and I do have a lot of those analog things in my life because I do, I do like it. I do like it. I just think it's fun. Yeah. That's what life's supposed to be is it's supposed to be fun. And I wonder, like, I mean, I have a, I have a bag here that I just got recently from Melville and Moon and, you know, it's a brand new bag, but it looks like it could be from any period, including a hundred years ago. The reality is, is that a bag like this, I can give to my nephews. Yeah. It's the buy once, cry once thing. At some point in time, it's a very classic design. It, It like, yes, there are more modern messenger bags that probably do some things better, but they're going to look dated. Like if you look at some of the messenger bags from even six years ago, it's like, oh, that's, that's an old bag. You know, the, the idea of this like very kind of technical product now it has its, has its places. Right. But like I pull it out the other day and it's only a couple of years old and I'm like, like the style is just like, you know, it looks temporary. It looks dated. Right. And we talk about I mean, even guys have fat, fast fashion, right? Yeah. I mean, you can tell like that that's no longer cool. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the, the Swiss gear backpacks that like every dad that works in sales and flies a lot has. Sorry, dad. Um, <laughs> no, but you can, you can tell. Whereas, and, and again, it's not to say that there's some advantage to this, to this Melville and moon bag, other than the fact that it will last a long time and, and it will look neutral good in, in its design. Right? It like, is it's not trying to be a ninja backpack that, 10 different things yeah. to pull out of because as soon as the the thing that you're meant to put in that very specific pocket changes it just becomes a very temporary item even yeah. if it's of good you know quality manufacture I, I don't know i mean i think that there's just something to again something that i think we've always kind of talked about is buy once cry once yeah now, that doesn't mean that you have to like buy things exclusively that look like they're from the 1960s or earlier <laughs> sure. or whatever unless um, you like unless you like that but it like maybe think about the fact is would you enjoy something that's more classic? Yeah. Like I, I have a barber jacket that I've had for probably 15 years now. Yeah. That's a long time. They still sell it. Like I'll have that for another 15 or 20 years. Right. Like I'm going to have a lot of jackets that are that kind of fast fashion thing that, that goes through. But 
that's still the jacket that I grab when it's, you know, pissing down rain outside all three times that that happens in Prescott. But yeah, when I, when I hop on the Moto Guzzi, I throw on a barber jacket. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same jacket that I've had and it's weathered and dusty and like sun faded. It's of course. Yeah. So of course. And it's just, it doesn't need, and it's probably, it's probably not the best choice just from a safety standpoint, but it's a, it's a 50 something horsepower motorcycle. I'm not going that fast. Yeah. Like it's fine. It's again, it's period correct, yeah. period correct gear, a yeah. bell helmet and a barber jacket and an old school air cooled Moto Guzzi. It all works together. It, it, it works. And again, you know, the idea that we're kind of talking about again, isn't this is what you should do to drive around the world. We're, yeah. we're talking about it more from a lifestyle element of it's just kind of fun and enjoyable and, it's and it a makes nice escape. It makes it fun for you and I, at least. I mean, yeah. we have always enjoyed that thing. In fact, we're going to find this picture, but Matt was on the cover of Overland Journal with <laughs> Kelsey, Kelsey Huber and, and a couple others. Maybe it was just you two. I think it was us. Yeah. Yeah. You guys had, we had a, a series Land Rover that we got from Land Rover and you, clean one. and Kelsey had to hold the gun because I didn't really, <laughs> she, she knew how to shoot it. I, I was from, I'm from Chicago. We didn't really have that there. Yeah. So she was holding the gun. There was some campaign furniture in there. We'll find that. I think it was these chairs. It was, it was. We've we've enjoyed this stuff. It is a lot of fun and it is fun to reminisce about. One of the things that I was hoping that we could do is kind of call on our audience. If anyone is traveling in that way, or if anybody is still driving that FJ40 from 1972 that they bought from their dad or the dad gave them when they graduated from high school, I'd love to see it. And yeah. we, we'll repost it. You know, you can reach me, Scott.a.brady on Instagram and Matt's Matt Explorer, but you can reach out. I'd love to see some photos of your old school stuff, your old school cool stuff, because I suspect that we're not alone in that appreciation of canvas and leather. For us, it's canvas and leather and pith helmets. And that's the same pith helmet I think you were wearing in that photo too. It it probably was. (laughs) See? It's lasted a long time. It has. It's aged better than me. It has. What else you got, Matt? Any other ideas? You think we've kind of talked through that period correct vehicle stuff too? I think that we've kind of talked through it. I mean, I think my advice is just, you know, recognize the era of the vehicle that you're modifying. Yeah. And I think that you can have a lot of fun with it. And a lot of times these parts are really cheap. You know, I found these IPF lights for like 50 bucks on eBay and they were essentially brand new. Yeah. I mean, what does a set of quality spotlights cost these days? Yeah. I mean, like 1200 bucks, 1400 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, and it allows you to kind of have fun with these projects. Like we're going to, we're, we're going to do some some interesting resto mod things, for example, to the Super Duty, but uh, you know, it's going to get a coil conversion and some more modern axles. So it'll actually steer know, steer. <laughs> but, you know, aesthetically, the, the goal, you know, keep it keep it in its period, because sure. I think you'll find whenever you take an older car and you're trying to make it look new, you're just always reaching like it wasn't that long ago that people would try and put a different grill on this truck yeah, uh, to make it look like the next generation. And I think people get tired of their vehicles more quickly that way. I think the closer you keep it to stock or the closer you keep it to being vintage or whatever, the more likely you are going to want to hold on to it. But if you're constantly chasing, eventually these vehicles no longer look right. um, And then fairly short order, if you try to keep them looking modern, you know, they just end up, it's like the, you know, the Bronco analogy, eventually it just becomes this shell of what used to be a Bronco with a bunch of other stuff on it. And it, yeah, a stinger, a stinger on a CJ seven never looks good. No, no yeah, matter the period. Don't put led lights on your CJ seven. Yeah. Like, like, like let it be, let it be, but, but like, you know, flawed, 
put <laughs> maybe maybe the upgrade is that you put some cool H1 lights on it and you get like the little the little mesh wire, you know, run yeah. chip cover. Yeah, sure. And that's the period modification that things would have the way I totally had those done. on my CJ7. Yeah, but that, but <laughs> I had the Hella H4, you know, replacement headlamps with the little rock guards on them. Yeah, totally did. super cool. Totally did. And, and fun. And, and yeah. comparatively these days, you know, classic cars are not cheap historically, you know, and this isn't investment advice, but they have generally gone up in value because mm-hmm. there's, again, so many people that cut the fenders out and put all the crap on them that they're a, you know, there's, there's fewer and fewer of them every day. So if you have something that is original and, you know, has the few period correct modifications, it's probably not going to be something you're going to lose your, lose your ass on. There's, there's a lot of insights into that and it's part of a good diversification of your portfolio. So, I mean, again, not financial advice, but there has been a significant trend towards things and there, you can access these things at any at any income level, you can buy an old Seiko for a couple hundred dollars that can be, that can continue to go up in value because they're not going to make that Seiko again. It's old. Yeah. So it's from 1968 or whatever, and it can go all the way up to the, you know, the $1.5 million gold wing um, and everything and everything in between. So there, it is a way to engage with some of these things in a really fun way where it's also not going to go down in value. Yeah. And, and I do, I do actually want to maybe do a, a, a podcast with my buddy Eli on the collectible four wheel drives, because I, you know, I, I kind of have this theory that cars are, have become such a collectible asset, mm-hmm. but four wheel drives really aren't appreciated in the same way. Yeah. You know, um, and they're re- by comparison, they're super cheap. Like I mean, what would, what would be like the highest watermark of a, of a classic four wheel drive? It would have to be like an FJ 40, or it would have to be, I'm trying to think, a defend, really early. I mean, the highest sale defend. price of a four-wheel drive that I'm aware of, classic, collectible with racing heritage and provenance is Big Ollie that yeah. Philip Seraphim bought. You that's know, a one-of-one one But that's a one-of-one one thing. I mean, that was over a million dollars. But like a classic Bronco, like a real Bronco, you're probably looking I, at I think, 30 grand, 40 grand? I think maybe a little bit more than that. Not restoring. that's clean. Well, you know, stuff that isn't restored can oftentimes well not oftentimes generally speaking is worth more than it's only original once sure right so you're talking about like a survivor car a survivor car like the holy grail for me if i was looking for something would be i guess the problem with four-wheel drives is they generally made a lot of these things Mm -hmm. and scarcity drives prices sure scarcity and rarity i mean imagine finding a very original ten thousand mile fj40 jeez i mean that would be that would be be worth a lot of money a lot of times these vehicles just weren't ever in the consideration set of something to preserve. You know, let's let's compare it to a Porsche or better yet, a Ferrari. People have always known that Ferraris would be special. So people have always taken care of them mm-hmm. in, in such a way to preserve them. Where four-wheel drives, particularly in their golden era, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they were utility they were tools. That's what makes the original stuff, you know, very desirable. But it's also, I think, pretty affordable. I mean, if you compare it, like if you were to compare like the the barn find FJ40 to uh, Ferrari 250, like it's like, you like know, the barn find FJ40 could, you could probably get it for 70, 80, 90 grand. Like now the 250 compared- has production numbers. I think there's about between 50 and 80 of those made, 50 to 100 of those made. We don't even know if there's an a, a, actually a way to accurately value those cars, right? Because generally speaking, they're all owned by people 
of which they don't need money to sell them. is yeah. is sure. it's not an object. Aren't they called dead guy cars? Dead guy cars. Yeah. yeah. So the only way you get one is somebody has to die. So so when you're family when you're a billionaire it. car collector and you have a 250 GTO, you're at the top of the game. And and what what do you sell it for? Yeah. You know. So like, what would you replace it with? Th- those cars are <laughs> yeah. generally valued somewhere between, you know, depending on the condition, provenance, whatever. There's been rumors of those things selling in excess of a hundred million dollars. Sure. Like the Mercedes SL Uhlenhout, I believe sold for 140 in the 140s out of the Mercedes-Benz Museum. I believe they actually donated the money as well. Cars so are comparatively. Starting, cars are starting to become art. And as we rapidly transition, I believe as we rapidly transition to electric cars, I know that there's varying opinions, but I have to say that that Tesla I bought just makes me believe that even more like it's as transport, a wonderful car. It's not the most exciting thing I've ever owned, but these, these vehicles will become more and more scarce. And, you know, if I was a collector looking at four wheel drives, I would, I would be trying to find the things that are unique. Yeah. You know, for example, like I'm really bullish on my AEVLJ. There's a handful of them really left that again, were a lot of them were bought to be used. There's very few of them that have 13,000 miles on not a scratch on them. And yeah, every it literally looks like a brand new car, yeah. you know, that, that you could get done. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in that kind of stuff. Um, stuff that uh, reflects a period of change. AV is a big change in the industry. It was that kind of that disrupting force. It was it, for sure. It was really cool. I would be looking at barn finds. I would be looking at stuff that is as original as possible. Look at like the FJ forties. They spiked in value. Let's call it 2012 to 2015. They went through the roof and then Venezuela and Colombia heard about it. Yeah. And the value, They're like we've got those, <laughs> the value of a, of a, of a very well restored FJ 40 went from fetching $150,000 at auction to maybe 75 because the supply was just so much. Sure. So again, I go back to originality, that time capsule vehicle, because it's only original once. Sure. And it's only correct once. Sure. Everything else can almost in perpetuity be rebuilt. And sure. just talking about the cost of labor and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the old Land Rover stuff is great. I think, you know, of the means, I think the Honestly, like the Lamborghini LM002 yeah. is very, <laughs> oh God, I saw one in Scottsdale a couple of weeks ago that had the entire Smitty built catalog thrown at it. And I'm like, no, <gasps> why would you do that? Yeah. You know, like even the tires on that car were so, they were very specifically specific made for, for sand. That. Yeah. yeah. They even had these little scallops on the shoulder to help scoop sand. Yeah. It was amazing. So cool. Amazing. So cool. I think. Uh, NAS spec Defender 110s yeah. and NAS spec Defender 90s, particularly the 110s, will always have a 500 of them. And so who, how, how many are left? So again, you're you're starting to talk about scarcity within what is overall a non-scarce market. You know that stuff. If I could sock one of those away, that would be quite cool. And and that's where you get into the the idea of this kind of period correct thing. That to me, the perfect Defender is John Lee's of course from Exhibition Exchanges. Defender, the right modifications to it. Yeah. I think that that will be very desirable. Yeah. Like even the, like even then the expedition exchange, when, when they had their moment, you know, early on in overlanding, like all of those modifications, we all know them still. Like, like the, the, like the, the two meter antenna. Yeah, like that would but come then up you can and got on stuff like yeah. that. You know, it's it's the snow the peak, right Yesu radio, the, snow peak, the right yeah, exactly. snow peak stuff, the right yeah. whatever. I think that and it was legit. It worked. Like the Trek edition uh, Land Rovers, yeah, um, will be 
desirable. I think the problem is, again, they kind of fall into this territory of there's a stigma against preserving four-wheel drives. And a lot of those things, they became so cheap. You know, we're talking a lot of these Trek things. There were some years there were eight of them built or yeah. something like that. Like very rare car. I think of the experience I was able to have getting that, you know, Trek from Land Rover that delivered with like 500 miles it, on it. It did. You know, no, that's still low mile and floating around, but. Yeah. It's still being used by Land Rover. Yeah. Which is awesome. And I think that, I think it's great to keep these vehicles going. Yeah. Um, the key is just preserving them. Yeah. And the first time I saw that car was in Mawa, New Jersey. I was working for Land Rover and just had a tarp and tire sitting on it. Yeah. But everything goes through that, right? Where yeah. it's desirable when it's new. Somebody stashes it away, becomes less desirable, becomes forgotten about. And the next thing you know. Like original Land Rovers. Yeah. Like how many original series Land Rovers are there? Yeah. Not many. Not many. Certainly not in North America. Well, that was fun. Yeah. So send us your classic vehicles. Send us like if you've done a trip in a classic four-wheel drive, we'd love to hear about it. It just, we geek out on this stuff. Yeah. So again, not travel advice, but super fun. Makes me smile, <laughs> makes me smile, makes me laugh. Yeah. Just to, like, just remembering you driving that Ralph around the old series Land Rover, just like the terror in your eyes. I remember, <laughs> I remember the way the master cylinder was done. There'd be a bubble in it. So, so if you wanted the brakes to work, you had to pump it three or four times. <laughs> That's when I remember the terror succession. in your eye. Cause it was like some failed hill climb tire away in the air. And Matt's eyes were like saucers. <laughs> like, am I going to die? I, I remember yeah. my like left. No, it would have been my left leg. Just like shuddering <laughs> yeah. under, like trying to keep the brake pressure on. <laughs> totally. So these things make us laugh. They're fun. And we thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next time.